Okay. <clears throat> so I'd like to begin tonight with a story. This was, um, there was a man, there is a man named Stephen Levine, who in the 80s was one of the first Western Buddhist teachers to teach about death and dying. And he was a very well-known teacher for uh, a long time. He wrote books on the subject. And he traveled all over the United States teaching workshops, large workshops on death and dying. So he told a story once to us. He said, one time I was teaching, let's say, in Kansas, a big auditorium, hundreds of people. And I got out there on stage and I said, how many of you are going to die? <laughs> and he said it took a really, really long time for people to raise their hands. Isn't that curious? <laughs> so this is the subject tonight. Not, some, not death only, but the whole fact of what is called anicca, impermanence. And this is what I would like to invite us to be curious about tonight together. Anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, is the Pali word for impermanence, for transiency. Pointing to the fact that everything born into conditioned existence has within it the nature to die, to rot, to decay, to disintegrate, to disappear, to come into being and to pass away. So in our practice, we're called to recognize this as a central fact of our lives. Whether we like it or not, it is a fact. Do we recognize it? Do we try to pretend otherwise? Do we ignore it? Well, that's just for other people. Do we embrace change or do we fear it? How do we celebrate embodiment while recognizing inevitable aging, perhaps illness, and most certainly death? As yoga practitioners and teachers, you are introducing students into a deeper intimacy with their physical existence. So these are deep and rich koans for you to explore for yourselves. In a culture which has a very weird relationship to the body, it both glorifies the appearance, the physical appearance, but fears the actuality of the body, thus hiding old age, illness, and death. In the Buddhist teaching, anicca is one of the characteristics, one of the three characteristics of all conditioned experience. The other two being dukkha, you've had quite a bit of teaching on dukkha, and anatta, the teaching of no-self, which we will also be exploring with you on this retreat. But tonight I'm going to focus on anicca. 
So in the most simple way, we could begin by looking at the fact that everything we hear, everything we see, everything we taste, everything we touch, everything we smell, what did I leave out? Everything we think. All of these are marked by the fact that they are not enduring, not solid, not permanent. We can find in any moment of our experience, right now in this very moment of your life, can you find anything that is solid, enduring, permanent, worthy of entrusting your happiness? If we look carefully and are honest and uh, uh, with ourselves, we, we have to admit that every moment of our experience is marked by these three laws, you could say, of how it is here. It's just the way it is. In the way that it is talked about, Anitra also connotes qualities of instability, unreliability, inconstancy, unpredictability, and uncontrollability. Your yoga practice. We can't rely on our yoga practice to be consistent, stable, controllable. You notice how it changes day to day, hour to hour, moment to moment. In meditation practice, we certainly get the, the perhaps frustrating experience that we can't rely on our minds to be sharp, clear, resilient, equanimous, that mind that we love so much. Where is it? I'm feeling agitated, restless, full of loathing and lust. Our practice is what then? Is it trying to get back to that perfect state that we touched a few times if we were lucky? Or is it actually training us to do something much more delicate, subtle, and actually a lot more useful? Our practice is actually training us to work with changing conditions, all the changing conditions of body and mind that are imperfect, inconstant, unreliable, unpredictable. So this is what I want to explore with you tonight. And in this emphasis, in this retreat, in our practice of mindfulness, this opening to the three characteristics of anicca, anatta, and dukkha mark a significant shift in meditation practice. From using meditation as a tool for calming and centering, creating greater well-being and peacefulness, to meditation as a means of cultivating liberating insight. The phrase, seeing things as they really are, that's what this is referring to. It refers to this stage of practice of seeing all phenomena, external and internal, 
in the light of these three characteristics. The great Buddhist scholar, Nyanapanakatera, says this, to see things as they really are means seeing them consistently in the light of the three characteristics. Ignorance of these three or self-deception about them is a potent cause for suffering. By knitting, as it were, the net of false hopes, of unrealistic and harmful desires, of false ideologies, false values, and aims of life in which we are caught, ignoring or distorting these three basic facts can only lead to frustration, disappointment, and despair. One way to describe this path of insight, or sometimes called Vipassana meditation, is as both a way of being and a way of seeing. It is a way of being characterized by openness, kindness, patience, generosity, readiness to help, and a way of seeing which means seeing through the appearances of the world as solid, enduring, permanent, to the actuality of how they actually are. We open to this truth of Anicca in two ways, and I'm going to touch on each of these tonight. This is in no way even a very thorough Uh, examination of a Nietzsche. It is uh, a beginning of an exploration that really is a lifelong exploration in our practice. But in the context of, of of these practices, we open to this truth of impermanence in two major ways. One, through a process of hearing these teachings hearing about the Buddha's teachings on impermanence, reflecting on what we observe in our own lives. What changes do we notice in the world around us? What changes, what do we notice in our own experience about not being able to hold on to things, not being able to make things that we like last, or the relief we feel when something we don't like does go away. So we do a lot of reflecting on this subject of impermanence as a way of really mingling our mind with the subject so that we begin to become more sensitive to it. We begin to inquire into it and find for ourselves, what is my relationship to this teaching? What is my relationship to Anicca? The second way we open to it is through our direct experience. The school of hard knocks, we could say the way in which life 
kind of knocks us around and we get disappointed and we lose things and we, you know, that school. Getting blown around by what are called the worldly winds. Have you heard of those in this, in this training? What are they? Anybody remember? Praise and blame. Yeah, that's a good one. Fame, disrepute, gain and loss, and the biggies, pleasure and pain. So we see the futility of trying to only have one side of these dualities, of trying to make something last. We recover, you could say, from the happily ever after version of life, which... I grew up with. Now I'm one of the older people here, so I don't know, maybe you, your, your families were more realistic, but I definitely grew up in the 50s with the happily ever after version of reality and kept looking for it, you know, thinking that it was about finding this perfect condition of, you know, home, marriage, children, money, and it would just stay perfect for the rest of my life. And that was what happily ever after actually meant, was that. And of course, it didn't ever, couldn't ever happen. It never does. But you have to sometimes discover these things for yourselves. So we learn through experience, we learn through observation, we learn through surviving the ups and downs of our lives, surviving difficult periods in our practice where we see that it passes, then we can survive it. And then there's a much deeper and more subtle level of practice where we really begin to let in, in a very moment-to-moment opening, the reality of this constant shifting flow of experience. And when we let it in, it actually has a very profound effect on us. When I had this when I was in this kind of stage of practice, you could say, it was, I had heard about it, but when it actually happened, I was dumbstruck. I kept walking around saying to my teachers, all I could say really was, when something is gone, it's really gone. And that was like the most wondrous thing I had ever experienced. <laughs> so even though it sounds kind of, well, yeah, so what? It, when it happens to you, it can be very striking. So tonight, some reflections on this subject of Anicca. And I'd like to start with the subject of time. What makes us aware of the passing of time? Often simple things. The end of a day, the sun setting, the moon rising, the change of season. Or perhaps when your child leaves home and you think, where, 
where did it go? They were, they were rocked by baby and now they're off to college. Or when you meet an old friend and they, gosh, they kind of look like they're getting old. <laughs> or you suddenly catch a glimpse in the mirror and you think it's one of your parents that's looking <laughs> back at you. Or the sudden stiffness in the knees or the limbs. These little moments, you know. I remember the first wrinkle. It was shocking. Or the first gray hair. Little did I know that was nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But such moments begin to awaken us from this trance of feeling our lives will always be as they are now. You know that trance? It's what Gandhi spoke of as blessed monotony. When we are comfortably immersed in a time in our life that's quite routine, perhaps, things are somewhat settled, it seems that things will never change. And we may view any change as a kind of aberration, like this shouldn't be happening or some kind of irritation that we try to get rid of as soon as possible to get back to our safe and ordered world. We try to regain our blessed monotony. But we live in time. Like fish in water, we live in time. Because it is the medium in which we live, it is difficult to know time for what it is. I'd like to play a little bit with time with you tonight. What if time were to stand still? There is a book called Einstein's Dream where he plays with time. There is a place where time stands still. Raindrops hang motionless in air. Dogs raise their muzzles in silent howls. Pedestrians are frozen on the dusty streets, their legs cocked as if held by strings. The aromas of dates, mangoes, coriander, cumin are suspended in space. One sees parents clutching their children in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The beautiful young daughter with blue eyes and blonde hair will never stop smiling. The smile she smiles now will never lose the soft pink glow on her cheeks, will never grow wrinkled or tired, will never get injured, will never unlearn what her parents have taught her, will never think thoughts that her parents don't know, will never know evil, will never tell her parents that she does not love them anymore will never stop touching her parents as she does now. And at the place where time stands still, one sees lovers kissing in a frozen embrace that will never let go. The loved one will never take his arms from where they are now, will never journey far from his lover, will never fail to show his love, will never become jealous, will never fall in love with someone else, will never lose the passion of this instant. What if we were here telling you over and over again when you find a good moment, 
hold on to it. Freeze it, keep it, don't let it go. Make it last. How would that be? In Einstein's dream, he also plays with the idea that we might live forever. And what would that be like? In the world where people live forever, he says there are the the people who are called the nows and people who are called the laters. The laters reason that there's no hurry to do anything, to begin their classes, to read Voltaire, to seek promotion in their jobs, to fall in love, to raise a family. For all these things, there's an infinite span of time. The nows, however, note that with infinite lives, they can do all they can imagine. They will have an infinite number of careers. They will marry an infinite number of times. They will change their politics infinitely. Each person will be a lawyer, a bricklayer, a writer, an accountant, a painter, a physician, a farmer. The nows are constantly reading new books, studying new trades, new languages, on and on. The nows and laters, as different as they are, have one thing in common. With infinite life comes an infinite list of relatives. Grandparents never die, nor do great-grandparents, great-aunts and great-uncles, great-great-aunts, and so on, back through the generations. Suppose we were going to live forever. What would that be like? Well, we are not. We are, we are going to die. We are not frozen in eternity, and we don't have forever. We live instead in time, which is the birthplace of Anicca, because it means constant change. Opening to this truth is a big part of practice and of awakening. So in our meditation practice, You've probably heard this instruction before, but I think it's worth revisiting. In our meditation practice, there are two different ways of attending to our experience. One way is to look at the content of our experience, the ongoing story we tell ourselves about who we are, how we're doing, if we like what's happening or not, if we're doing good or not, if we're succeeding or not, if we're falling behind or not. You know that story? Has anybody experienced that story at all since you've been here? Now, meditation may include many insights into how we construct this story, but its goal is not so much to radically change the content of our story as it is to see the story as a story. In other words, to see it for what it is. It is a story we tell ourselves. We sit here making up the story of our lives, do we not? It's not, and it's not enough to tell ourselves the story once, <laughs> right? And then you got it down. No, you got to repeat it, repeat it endlessly, endlessly, over and over again. 
The second way to attend to our experience is by bringing our attention not to the story, but to the level of the process of our moment-to-moment experience. So we talk about breathing, sensing, hearing, thinking, feeling, tasting, seeing. And we begin to enter this world of flow, the flow of our experience. Sometimes we think it's a mistake, like, well, if I'm noticing thinking, shouldn't the thoughts stand still? No. The point is to see this flow, to understand that this is the nature of mind and body. Things are rising and passing in in succession, one after the other. Nothing can be held, nothing can be stopped. And how nothing which arises in this mind or body is solid or enduring when we really look. In the Tibetan tradition, they call the mind the mind stream. It's a skillful languaging of the reality. It is a stream of imagery, thoughts, memories, beliefs, just pouring forth, and it doesn't even stop at night. At night, the mind stream continues to offer us dreams, imagery, thoughts. Now, one of the things that we begin to observe, and when we enter it, when we begin to see this this process of experience. And when we we learn to observe carefully and without interference, when we are able to be very carefully, precisely present, noticing as it is, we discover something. We discover that all of this is happening by itself. Sounds arise and pass by themselves. Have you noticed? (laughs) Thoughts, likewise, arise and pass by themselves when we don't interfere, when we don't grab on. They come and they go all by themselves. Likewise, sensations. Likewise, emotions. Everything. This is their nature. When we see this, we are seeing the actual nature of all phenomena, that everything arises and passes on its own. We don't have to be averse to them. We don't even have to try to get rid of them. They go on their own. Suzuki Roshi here. He said, renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. They go away on their own. Another way of reflecting on Anicca comes from this little story that has been in our, our scene for years, and I've always enjoyed this story. 
It, it's a story, I think, that began with Jack Kornfield. It's about Achan Shah, his teacher in Thailand, used to sit at his cootie and give teachings. And uh, one day, he, he was giving a teaching on impermanence, and he had a cup, very much like this cup, and he said, do you see this cup? He said, to me, this cup is already broken. I have no illusion about the fact of its permanence, its foreverness. It's already broken. I know that it too will be subject to the laws of Anicca. He said, but while it is here, I can enjoy it. I can appreciate it for its usefulness. How wonderful, a cup. But let's not fool ourselves. It's not going to be here forever. So you're probably already thinking ahead to what this metaphor means so that we can say to many things in our lives. Or we could take the example of this retreat. We could say, this retreat is already over. But while it is here, can we appreciate, can we enjoy, can we take full advantage of what is offered? And we can also say, this body, this body is already dead. That's a harder one, isn't it? But while it is here, can we feel the aliveness of being, the enjoyment, the pleasure, the, uh, the aliveness that it allows us, the contact with this amazing world? Another way to reflect on the truth, the fact of it. Buddhist scholar Nanamoli says, has this wonderful little phrase I want to share with you, whatever is will be was. Whatever is will be was. This is the nature of all conditioned existence. The Buddha said, birth will end in death, Youth will end in old age. Meetings will end in separation. Wealth will end in loss. All things that exist in cyclic existence are impermanent, are transient. Or more personally, the Buddha said, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. How do we take this in? It's a lot to take in, isn't it? So I'd like to take you through a little guided exercise, if you wouldn't mind. We'll see. Um, So I'd like you just to close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind 
a young and beautiful person, female or male, someone in the culture, in the media, or someone you know, a beautiful young person. And see them here in the space in front of you. Notice their beauty, their youthfulness. And now I'm going to ask you to do a really difficult thing, which is to picture this person really, really, really old at the other end of their life. Look at their body. Look at their posture. Look at their hair, their skin. Notice their hands. Notice the sound of their voice. And then open your eyes. You might have felt some resistance to that. Did you feel resistance to doing that? Yes? How many felt some resistance? How many felt not no resistance? So what was that like to do that? I'd really be curious to hear. Yeah. To picture them old, yeah. That's interesting. Anything else? Who else? Yes. There was a kind of release. Kind of release. Uh, yes. Thank you. Who else? Yes. I felt a relief that I wasn't alone. A relief that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aging is kind of a secret. We think it's secret, but it's actually quite shared. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. Yes. 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 Wonderful. One more. Yes. 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 Say again. Yes. That's right. Actually, see them. Yes. So this is a stretch. This is thank you for participating. When I traveled in Asia in the in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I, I would visit different monasteries in Thailand. I, I suppose this was in Burma too, but I particularly remember Thailand. Every monastery, somewhere in the monastery, they had a would have a picture, a large like mural or 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 poster 
display of the span of human life. In other words, it was a regular contemplation to look at the whole lifespan, to see from birth to childhood to young adult to older person to parent to getting older and older and then death. So that this was a this is a constant reflection on the truth of it. We're not frozen in time here. Things are changing even as we speak. So I want to turn our attention now. Anne spoke this morning about the attitude of disdain for the material world which developed in both the Buddhist and the yoga traditions. And I just wanted to make some comments about that because I found that very interesting. And I would say one is that we're still a bit in recovery from that. And perhaps women feel it more keenly than men, although not exclusively. I think we could make a case that um, our very planet is suffering from still from some of that split between mind and matter. And it is also a reflection of mine that in the world right now, it is a piece of hopefulness to see all the, the, the new research and discoveries that are bringing to our attention a wiser view of the relationship between mind and matter in the neurosciences, in physics, in the field of psychoimmunology. I may not be saying that right. A much more sophisticated understanding of the inseparability of mind and matter are coming into view. And this is a very good thing for our, for our whole world, I believe. And it brings in the possibility of the sacred. It brings in the possibility of revisioning our relationship to the planet itself. And by the way, today is Earth Day. And so we honor and recognize this Mother Gaia and her mighty labors to handle the degree of uh, impact we have had we are having on her. So these recent discoveries and this this resurgence of interest in like what is science, what is spirituality, what is the connection between mind and matter, I think is a, uh, for me it really Um, confirms what the Buddha taught about the tremendous potential we have as humans for transforming greed and hatred and delusion into wisdom, into compassion, without having to disdain the body, disdain the earth or sexuality, but seeing that we can include and honor these life forms. And it seems that the whole planet right now 
in opening to these teachings is in a learning curve about how to live on earth with greater wisdom and compassion, to be in harmony with the physical world rather than the endless exploiting of the earth's resources. That's a bit of an aside, but I want to also ask, how can we be wise and compassionate in relation to our bodies? And this is an ongoing exploration for all of us. I think an important understanding which grew in me over years of doing both yoga, the Hatha yoga and Buddhist practice sort of side by side for many years is the view I came to have that the physical body is only one of a number of bodies that we inhabit. And that opening the physical body through asana puts us in touch with the energy body, the emotional body, the awareness body, the mental body, the imaginal body. And it's such a beautiful doorway for that. I see our practice as a weaving, a deep intimacy of a deep intimacy with life in all its manifestations together with this opening of our being to the truth of the vastness of our being and learning that we are so multidimensional and that there is, we have so much potential and so many resources inside of us so that all the conditions of our lives are seen not as obstacles, but as doorways to a a deep and wise knowing of our actual nature. Anne mentioned the descriptions of the body in these ancient texts meant to arouse disgust and disdain, the pus and the sack of this and that. Um, (laughs) I don't remember the exact words, but we got the, the, the feeling. And so I would like to offer tonight some contemporary observations of the body which may arouse other emotions, more contemporary descriptions of this wondrous body as the fact that the average adult human is made up of a hundred trillion cells. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. So 
So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of your body are appearing and disappearing. So if you think you are your body, which body are you talking about? (laughs) The body you have today is not the same as the one you had yesterday, never mind seven years ago. And it's doing this all without your conscious participation. Isn't that a wonder? Imagine if we had to keep track of all that. It would really be hard. And then we come to physics. And here's some other interesting things to know about this human body. 100 trillion cells make up the human body. Each of those cells, in turn, consists of atoms. Countless millions or billions of them, depending on the specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space. Protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space. The atoms existed before the body they make up ever existed. And they will be here after your body is gone. In the meantime, in the short interval of life, the atoms are held together by some indescribable, unknowable force that we have yet to understand. Truly mysterious. So the body has its own life its own mysterious life, completely independent of our will, our desires, our agendas. It ages on its own terms. It dies on its own terms. It is life itself, living itself. At times we are forced to pay more attention to this body. Sometimes when we're ill or when an injury occurs, we may become more attentive to the ways of the body. Aging brings many lessons from the body. I remember going through menopause and thinking that the energy and clarity of mind that I always thought was me, that was Anna, was actually estrogen. (laughs) That was rather humbling. And then there is the mystery of memory. The wise Sufi fool Nasruddin, when he went to the psychiatrist, he complained. He said, I'm here because I can't remember anything. And the psychiatrist said, Nasruddin, well, how long has that been going on? And Nasruddin said, how long has what been going on? (laughs) Or the still mysterious phenomenon of Alzheimer's disease, a world-famous painter who died without remembering that he had ever painted, or a former president who did not remember that he had been president. This is very disturbing. We see that memory, which we rely on as the very basis of our sense of identity and our self-image, is not reliable. It is completely subject to a Nietzsche. There's a cartoon that kind of captures something to a couple looking, looks like they're walking down a street in New York, 
And the man is saying to the woman, someday we'll look back at this time in our lives and be unable to remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Or Billy Collins, a wonderful poem called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. (laughs) Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle on a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Now this is disturbing news to the ego mind which likes to believe it is in control. From the point of view of awareness, we can view it as a teaching. The ego really can't deal with it at all, so don't even go there. (laughs) The Buddha said, thus shall you think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. Conditions of our lives are like that. Sometimes one thing changes and our whole world changes. The sudden loss of a child, a sudden illness, a house burns down, a car accident. When any of these happen, it's like we're suddenly living in another world with different emotions, a different story, a different role for us to play. Who we thought we were is revealed to be illusory, only real in relation to ephemeral circumstances. The athlete may be suddenly the invalid. The wife is suddenly the widow. The millionaire is suddenly the pauper. The beloved child is suddenly the orphan. On and on, the the grist of daily news. Many more examples could be given. But before I stop, I want to talk about one more thing, which is that what is it that prevents us from seeing a Nietzsche as a central fact of our lives? What is it that keeps it kind of out there. One, I think, is a, one thing is the kind of culture we live in which encourages us to be good consumers and to hold on to the illusion of continuity and permanence. We fill our lives with compulsive doing, with compulsive activity. One teacher calls this endless activity housekeeping in a dream. 
or like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. But probably the primary factor in creating this illusion of permanence is this mind, this wanting, craving, grasping mind. Nothing makes the world seem more solid and real and permanent than when we are caught in really, really wanting something or in really, really hating something. The whole thing gets very solid very fast, right? We're solid, the thing we want is solid, or the thing we don't want is is solid. We lose all sense of impermanence, transiency, emptiness. There was a time in my practice when I began to see very vividly that my wanting was not in charge. It was quite a revelation, quite a humbling revelation, I would say. No matter how much I wanted to hold on, and in this case I was trying to hold on to particular meditative experience, I could not. Everything defeated that possibility. I saw that my wanting was not in charge. Oh my. This opening to the truth of the three characteristics happens for each of us in different ways usually over a long period of time, sometimes suddenly, sometimes dramatically, but open it will. Often it begins with disappointment. Rumi has a poem that describes this. Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. (laughs) Our wanting is not in charge. What is in charge? The Buddha called that causes and conditions. Understanding the play of causes and conditions and how they work is a very big part of our mindfulness practice. A useful analogy in presenting this sort of abstract sounding material is that of surfing. There was a poster years ago of Swami Satchitananda standing on a surfboard his long flowing beard and white robes, looking like he was happily surfing the big waves. And the caption was, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. Come study with Swami Satchidananda. So it's a beautiful metaphor for our lives, for the internal experience, the internal waves, the external waves. So what does it take to learn to surf? Practice. Close observation of the ocean and the waves. Understanding the waves 
the nature of waves, how they operate. Surfers study the waves, they study the tides. They become masters of causes and conditions. In the same way we can learn through mindfulness, this, through careful observation, the nature of our minds and bodies, how they operate, how our emotions and thoughts operate. How we can ride the waves of change in our very own body and mind without getting entangled, without getting thrown. How we can be free in the midst of change. The surfer learns how to meet the wave, how to ride the wave. She doesn't take it personally if the wave is difficult or if she falls off. She doesn't become a victim of the wave. That's a good teaching right there. Rather, she gets back on and tries again. So in our minds and in our lives, we can learn how to collaborate with the waves of change, how to see the constant flow of change as both our teacher and our ally in life. Another example is from the nature artist Andy Goldsworthy who goes out into nature and collaborates with the things he finds in nature to build temporary, often, works of art. And one film of, about his work shows him trying to make a cairn of stones. And he builds this cairn of all these different shaped stones, and it keeps collapsing builds it again, collapsing, builds it again, collapsing. You know, like four times he's like building this thing and you think, oh my God, just go home, just forget it, you know. But he keeps going. And what I found so interesting was that after the fourth collapse, what was his response? He said, he kind of laughed and he said, I haven't yet understood the nature of these stones. That's all. Just working on it, you know? So it's kind of like us with our minds. We're asked to understand the nature of what it is we are dealing with. So this is hopefully a teaching on how to be wise about the nature of our experience. Learning to ride the waves of change in our lives on our surfboards, on our cushions, on our yoga mats. Learning that we can do this, balance, equanimity, resilience, serenity, all in the midst of change. So Anicca is our teacher, both internally in our meditation practice and through all the changes in our lives. We learn from reflecting on the changes we observe, inner and outer. <laughs> Thank you. Let's sit together for a moment.
One last poem by Jennifer Wellwood. The Dakini speaks. My friends, let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.